Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the dangers of delaying healthcare and necessary medical procedures amid the COVID-19 pandemic. To address this are IDSA members Dr. Jason Newland with Washington University and Dr. Elisa Choi of Harvard University. Thank you both for being with me. Dr. Choi, let's start with you and the basic question on everyone's mind, it seems. Is it safe to go to the doctor if the medical issue is not related to COVID-19? From my perspective, it is safe to go back to the doctor, even for non-COVID-19 related issues. There is actually a concern among many physicians, uh, myself included, and many medical practices and healthcare facilities that um, many patients had been deferring care due to COVID-19 related concerns. And certainly in the very beginning of the pandemic, it was a matter of not being able to access care because many healthcare settings actually shut down for any face-to-face care except for emergency care that was needed. Um, As we are in most parts of the U.S. and certainly globally opening up for care now, it's extremely important that the message is transmitted by all of us as physicians and caretakers that um, it is actually safe and it's necessary to make sure that continued deferred care for management of various chronic diseases and illnesses, as well as any acute issues that come up, don't get deferred, which could also be dangerous and harmful to the patient. Thank you for your insight there, Dr. Choi. Dr. Newland, moving on to you now, how can physicians help patients understand that it's safe to seek medical care and what steps are being taken to prevent transmission in healthcare settings? Well, I think as Dr. Choi said that, you know, we in the healthcare professionals have seen the impact of deferring care. Um, we know that it's safe. And if we think back to the start of this pandemic, and Dr. Choi was on in February, I was on in April, things have changed dramatically in the sense of what we know to actually help prevent transmission. And probably the first and foremost is masks. In February, uh, we weren't talking about masks. Um, at least I wasn't. Uh, and I think probably Dr. Choi and being at Harvard was one of the very first probably one of the first places that really put the mask in place. And now we know that's super effective and has been effective in so many different settings that that's, that provides an extra level of, of safety that we all learned about. Additionally, we've all now have all these different steps that we put in place before you even come to be seen by, at, at the healthcare facility. So, you know, we know that, you know, we're going to screen people if they have symptoms of co- like COVID-19, like runny nose, cough, sore throat. All of us at the hospital get screened before we even walk in the door to make sure that we're not potentially transmitting the virus to anybody. And so there are so many things in place that we have, we know that the, that the hospitals are safe, safe places. And when we do see any transmission events that have even occurred within our hospitals, at least among our healthcare workers, it's usually during times when we're not paying attention like we should. So someone might've shown up with, the runny nose and cough, and then was in their break room without their masks on or working at their computers with a group of people without their masks on. These sorts of things have made healthcare become, we can do this during this pandemic. We can take care of those. We can make sure that people are getting their vaccines, make sure they're getting any of their preventative care. And I personally went and saw my primary care provider 
by the way, for the first time in many years, that was bad on me, but I did that during the pandemic. So I knew it was important that I needed to do that at my uh, ever increasing age. I'd like to add that there are, in addition to the masks, many other precautions that our healthcare settings are taking to continue to ensure the safety of patients who come to care. Uh, Dr. Newland uh, astutely pointed out that there's screening. Virtually all healthcare settings now are screening any patients who come in for face-to-face -face care, checking their temperatures, checking their symptoms, asking about whether they've had any known or suspected COVID-19 exposures. And that's happening not just with the face-to-face -face arrival at healthcare settings, but even when booking patients for face-to-face -face care or semi-elective procedures now, because that's also become um, more available, patients are being asked over the phone as well. So there's multiple levels of screening that help to ensure the safety of any patients and also the staff who work in healthcare settings. Additionally, many healthcare facilities and physicians offices and hospitals are finding ways to geographically isolate those who are coming in for COVID-19 or suspect COVID-19 care. And that's a really important measure that continues to enhance the safety of the care that we deliver for patients who are coming into our practices and our healthcare settings. Patients who may have suspect COVID-19 can be seen in a different location than those who are coming in for say an ankle sprain or something that's completely unrelated to COVID-19. And the workflows will be adjusted accordingly. Patients who come in for suspect COVID-19 will certainly have more heightened PPE requirements for the physicians and clinicians. They'll also have different workflows, um, including use of HEPA filters and other appropriate measures. And in addition to everything that Dr. Newland uh, mentioned and also what I just highlighted, there's a number of positives that have come up from the COVID-19 pandemic, but I think that the attention to infection control measures in the facilities where we work has really been um, very diligently addressed and adhered to during this pandemic. So frequent cleaning of examination rooms and uh, frequent touch surfaces, these are all things that are also now routine as part of um, how healthcare settings are managing from the infection control side. So these are all measures that have been undertaken since the COVID-19 pandemic, but many of them, including some of the infection control measures, will hopefully continue beyond the pandemic whenever we get there as we've learned about ways to reduce infection overall and in particular COVID-19 in the healthcare settings. And I'll just add one last thing that I realize that is the social distancing that people have been able to manage even with how they schedule patients and even having people wait in their cars before they're called in. There's, it's been really amazing, as you mentioned, Dr. Choi, about just how um, I, the infection control, our infection control colleagues making changes really quickly and making things so safe that, I mean, one would argue that it's probably even safer to come to the hospital than it was before because of all yeah. these sorts of things in place. The waiting rooms are socially and physically distanced. And in addition, um, some measures that are being taken in certain facilities, if patients may have suspect COVID-19, uh, there's uh, actually ways to get the history from patients without them even being in the practice or the healthcare setting first, perhaps over the phone or getting some of the history in the car. So these are all some uh, really um, uh, heightened measures to reduce 
the potential for having COVID-19 circulating in any healthcare settings, thus mitigating and minimizing risk to all of the patients. And there's other things too that may not be implemented anywhere, um, pardon me, um, everywhere in particular, but they can include uh, reducing transit of patients within healthcare settings if they have suspect COVID-19. For example, getting the phlebotomy done in their examining room so they're not going from their examining room and then going all the way to where the labs are drawn. Uh, so really reducing any potential for spread and exposure that way as well. So really um, adding on to the physical distancing measures. And these are things that I also think make our current healthcare settings much safer perhaps than they ever were before, uh, despite COVID-19 in the background. A lot of practical advice from both of you doctors. Thank you so much. Dr. Shoy, I'd like to stick with you. What sorts of medical problems are patients presenting with now for which they should have sought care sooner? What I'm seeing, and I think what is also being seen by a lot of physicians, are people showing up now because we do have available face-to-face -face care options with deferred care from chronic illnesses that perhaps were being put on the back burner during the early part of the pandemic when we had very restrictive stay-at-home uh, measures and when care that was being delivered was largely focused on emergency or urgent care situations. Uh, certainly, patients who have chronic illnesses, including some chronic infectious disease illnesses such as HIV or chronic hepatitis, but also non-infectious conditions such as diabetes, uh, cardiac conditions, congestive heart failure, chronic lung disease, chronic kidney disease. These complex chronic conditions require often frequent care and frequent check-ins and evaluations by physicians managing them. And much of that was being deferred. And I think many patients aren't yet comfortable or used to the idea that they now can come back and try to get back on schedule with the management of some of these chronic conditions. Also, there have been reports circulating, certainly in the lay press, that some people were not coming in, even for emergent situations. Uh, anecdotal reports of patients who had appendicitis and just never sought care and then had some significant complications. Um, other um, acute conditions such as uh, heart failure exacerbations or um, exacerbations of chronic lung conditions, COPD. And these are the things that now we need to try to draw back into care as we have opportunities and options for enhanced face-to-face -face care that is being done in a safe way to protect all of our patients and the medical staff and the support staff. We are also concerned about seeing things like not taking medications, not refilling, getting their medications refilled because they just don't want to get out. These sorts of things just are concerning, whether in the adult medicine or even in pediatric medicine for our kids, just not, not receiving those things. And, and, and even just doing a well child visit so that they're, you make sure that a two-month-old is growing and getting their shots, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit, but you know, seeing that, that development in a, in a child is so important so that they get the services they need. That could be even something like if, if you learn someone has hearing loss because they're making sure they have a repeat hearing exam. You know, months matter, uh, especially in children. And so the delays in care could have some 
significant long-term impacts even on our even on the youngest. You both make excellent points. Thank you. Dr. Newland, there have been reports about plummeting childhood immunization rates during the pandemic as you just alluded to previously. What can be done to get children and adults caught up on immunization? Well, being a a pediatric infectious disease physician first, you know, I've learned most about um, the, seeing the pediatric impact. But if we look overall, there's been some reports that overall throughout, you know, all age groups, there's been about a 49% drop in all vaccines. Um, if you look at um, in adults, the largest decrease was in the 19 to 49 year olds. Uh, that could be, uh, you know, super impactful because during that time, there could, some adults, these 19 year olds might need to be receiving the human papillomavirus vaccine, which is a cancer preventative vaccine. I mean, this vaccine prevents someone from having cancer. It's super important. Obviously, as well as the uh, tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis vaccine that we get as a booster, that has a significant impact on children because the youngest children, those less than two months of age who don't get this vaccine, um, could actually suffer from pertussis. So these things are real. And if we look at in children specifically, measles vaccination significantly plummeted beyond 50%, though things have returned. And thankfully, over the summer, when we see a lot of our well-child visits, um, I have heard with my uh, general pediatrician colleagues that they've been seeing a lot more and people have trusted in this more and more. But that delay could lead to outbreaks of things like measles, which has happened. It's happened in our own country. Last year, we had significant outbreaks in New York. I mean, so this is a real issue. So how do we do this and how do we make sure they get caught up? Well, one, we have to get them in the office. Um, And number two, we need to make sure that we have good updated vaccine records. So that's both on our hopefully our families, our patients, but also on our systems that we're doing a really good job of looking for that because in the midst of a visit, sometimes, unfortunately, we see vaccines get forgotten. And we as providers need to be very diligent um, and specific as we're going through that. And let's not forget our hospital setting. The hospital setting for all of our colleagues out there listening, um, please take the time to not just write down up to date. Um, Take the time to say, okay, yeah, I have looked at it. I have taken another few minutes, because it will take a few minutes to look at the vaccine records and, and identify those areas like the HPV, or maybe it's in a teenager, it's the meningococcal vaccine. Those who are going to going off to college, which I just took my son to college this weekend, have, do we have those things that they need to keep them safe? Dr. Nolan mentioning the HPV vaccine and the fact that it is in fact a cancer preventing vaccine brought to mind one thing I, Uh, neglected to mention in the previous question about the kind of care that is being delayed, and that is for adults' cancer screenings, particularly if there was abnormal cancer screenings. And speaking of HPV, uh, adult patients who get pap tests for cervical cancer screening, if there's been an abnormal pap, they should not delay. And that perhaps was something that was getting delayed. And this is a good opportunity to make sure to catch up on that kind of care. And I would absolutely concur about the importance of vaccinations, particularly as an adult physician and an adult um, infectious disease specialist. It's, it's exceedingly important that we really emphasize to our patients and also stress to our colleagues that immunizations are just as important for adults as they are for children. Dr. Newland and um, colleague pediatricians, it's something that just comes naturally, I think, but for many adult 
physicians uh, or pa physicians caring for adult patients, it's sometimes an afterthought and it's not always at top of mind. But ways that we need to be more proactive about immunizations, particularly during COVID-19, is to ensure that at every visit, whether it be a virtual visit or whether it is a face-to-face -face visit, even if it's for an urgent issue or an acute issue, take a minute or so and look at the vaccine record and see if the individual needs a vaccine or needs to get updated. Some of these vaccines may not seem as time sensitive, but we don't really know what direction the pandemic is going. And for right now, while we do have some access to face-to-face -face care, this is an opportunity to catch up on some of those vaccines. And we don't know if things will potentially get worse, if we'll have another surge, and if we need to scale back on face-to-face -face care. So we don't want to defer on immunizations and really try to make it part of the routine assessment of any adult patient. It's a really important priority. And in addition to the cancer prevention aspect of HPV vaccine, certainly uh, hepatitis B vaccine as well is a cancer preventing vaccine. And the vaccinations can be safely given for all of the reasons that we discussed earlier in terms of making accommodations safe for patients. We really don't wanna put those off and want to leverage the opportunity for face-to-face -face care now to do um, administer vaccines that are needed. Great advice from both of you. Dr. Choi, prior to the pandemic, the opioid crisis was driving increased rates of many infectious diseases. How has the pandemic impacted the opioid crisis and associated infectious diseases? The opioid crisis and COVID-19 pandemic have unfortunately become synergistic in a bi-directional fashion. Many patients who suffer from opioid use disorder and substance use disorder in general are also those for various reasons that might be at heightened risk of severe COVID-19 disease. Many of our patients who do have opioid use disorder also are disadvantaged by various non-medical social determinants of health. They may be more economically disadvantaged. Um, they may suffer from housing insecurity or um, food insecurity. They may also have a higher proportion of behavioral health conditions. COVID-19, in addition to medically becoming such a, a huge burden um, as a pandemic and because of the um, burden of care of managing COVID-19 infection and disease, has also had numerous secondary consequences. It has created this situation where we are very socially isolated and physically distanced from each other, and that's needed to prevent worsening pandemic spread. But for many people who have behavioral health conditions, uh, a number of whom also have opioid use disorder, the isolation that this pandemic has wrought is likely to also exacerbate some of their behavioral health conditions. And there is some effect in that setting for those who have opioid use disorder to perhaps have an exacerbation of their opioid use disorder as some of their behavioral health conditions may become less well controlled. Other aspects of what COVID-19 may have brought about with respect to the opioid crisis 
many of our patients who get care for opioid use disorder uh, get face-to-face -face care. They may actually need to have routine visits uh, for naloxone or other uh, substances that help manage their chronic condition. And when the early part of the pandemic came about, many of those types of visits may not have been accessible. They may be more accessible now, but it likely hasn't reached pre-pandemic access. Some of those visits may be able to be deployed now in virtual visits or in video visits, but for some of the reasons I outlined, many of our patients who do have opioid use disorder may also be economically disadvantaged, may not have the same kind of access to, to the internet or uh, broadband and may encounter the digital divide, which affects uh, many of our patients. So there's a dual pandemic, the opioid crisis, which predated COVID-19, but as has become unfortunately uh, very clear, COVID-19 has also really brought to light some of the inequities in care that our patients experience and has really heightened some of the already health disparities that existed. And many of our patients who do have opioid use disorder are unfortunately suffering from the health disparities. They were already pre-COVID-19, but it has just been magnified by the pandemic. So these dual pandemics, these dual crises are unfortunately working in a synergistic way to, I think, make it more difficult for some of our patients, particularly those who have opioid use disorder. Thank you, Dr. Choi. The last question I'd like to pose to both of you, Dr. Newland, I'll start with you. How concerned are you about the pandemic diminishing the number of people who get flu vaccines and what novel approaches should be utilized to boost flu vaccines this upcoming flu season? Well, I'm going to be half full on this and think that with what we're seeing in other parts of the world, such as Australia, New Zealand, where the influenza vaccination rates seem to be increased, maybe we're going to see that instead, just because people are more concerned. We definitely, definitely are going to have to push um, and do more with our messaging um, and the impact of what influenza virus will have during this pandemic, during the COVID-19 pandemic. As we know, influenza and COVID-19 look very similar. They will look Actually, you won't be able to tell the difference without testing. Um, and so the less we have of influenza, then the less we're going to be worried about COVID-19 and potential outbreaks in those settings. These sorts of things will be super helpful. That messaging is going to be important as well as we get a COVID-19 vaccine so that we need to be thinking about the importance of vaccination, the continued messaging to people to show that it is important. And we know that especially in pediatrics, that vaccine hesitancy and those who don't trust vaccines um, has risen. Uh, and it has risen in really the educated individuals and we need to can be putting out the right information, having the conversations now. And hopefully if you add in influenza vaccine, as well as the masking, the social distancing, the washing our hands, as much as we probably should have been always, we're gonna have one of the best respiratory viral seasons we've ever seen, but that's gonna be up to us um, and up to really a, a lot of uh, concerted efforts by all 
to recognize the importance of both flu vaccine and eventually the COVID-19 vaccine. I too would like to view the opportunity upcoming for the influenza season as perhaps a opening for us to do better with influenza vaccinations. Pre-COVID-19, I certainly encountered many patients who were happy to get other vaccines, but just would not want the flu shot. And there were a number of reasons, some of which may have been just general vaccine hesitancy, but there's definitely hesitation specifically with influenza because either they felt like um, it wouldn't be that bad if they got influenza or they didn't like how the influenza vaccine made them feel. I actually think there may be an opportunity with the right kind of messaging to encourage at this time making sure to get influenza vaccine because if anything, it's more important now because of the diagnostic uncertainty in differentiating between COVID-19 and influenza, as Dr. Newland pointed out. And unfortunately, it is a very scary situation with COVID-19. We don't have any natural immunity to it. We don't have a vaccine. We have some therapies, but not any that we can mass deploy throughout um, all of the population, much of which is the therapeutics are reserved for the most severe cases. So perhaps our patients who are worried about what potential co-infection between influenza and COVID-19 might look like, um, or perhaps wanting to protect themselves as much as possible from influenza as we head into typical influenza season with COVID-19 still widely in our communities uh, may actually be a way for us to leverage improved vaccination rates, particularly for influenza vaccine. Generally, the rates for influenza vaccination are fairly suboptimal, but we have an opportunity here with very proactive messaging to increase that and do better and hopefully follow suit with some of the countries around the globe that have done better. I would also add that this may be a time where we have to be a bit more innovative about how we deploy vaccines and specifically influenza vaccines. We may want to consider having targeted influenza vaccine clinics or mass influenza vaccination clinics. We may want to also think about, um, in particular, focusing on influenza vaccine with any of our face-to-face -face care or virtual visits and really heightening the messaging that it's very important to make sure to address that before we head into the worst of the winter season when respiratory illnesses in general have an uptick. And I think additional messaging about how severe it could be if somebody had the really terrible misfortune of having influenza illness and infection and also a dual infection with COVID-19. That has a fairly scary prospect of, of the outcome. And so perhaps we can really use this opportunity as the chance to improve the influenza vaccination rates. At this time, I'd like to thank both doctors Newland and Choi for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts 
discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.